Hi, Dr. Ron Ehrlich here, and welcome to another Healthy Bite. This week, I had the pleasure of talking with Tyson Yonkaporta, author of Sand Talk, How Indigenous Knowledge Can Save the World. What an appealing title that was. But before I start, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm recording this podcast, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. For me, who have been very keen on exploring lessons from the past and how uh, those lessons inform our future, is a really uh, exciting concept. So when I read the book, and certainly even before I read the book, just read the byline, I thought, well, I've got to get into this. And the book has such an interesting style, such an interesting content. Um, It's really all about looking at the world from an Indigenous perspective and offering that up to us to give some thought to. And one of the things about Indigenous knowledge is that it follows a very strict protocol. And that protocol is uh, one of firstly respect, then one connects with what it is you respect, and then you reflect, and eventually you direct. And I think it's fair to say that the non-Indigenous approach is almost the exact opposite of that. And particularly when we're talking about landing in a land, invading a land, um, it's generally um, not one of first respecting the Indigenous population and the fact that they have lived here for 65,000 at least years. Uh, It's one of uh, firstly directing what should happen. Uh, When that doesn't work too well, then there is some reflection that goes on eventually. And I think we might just be approaching this. I hope we are. I think we should. We have a lot to learn to connect with the Indigenous um, population and then, um, and then, you know, exercise respect and not just say sorry, but uh, thank you. And then eventually even perhaps saying, please. Look, there are just so many aspects to this book that I just loved. He writes in, grammatically, I think it's called the first person plural. He uses the word, um, the two of us, uh, us two, us two. And it really is like, uh, you know, he's yarning to you as you are reading this. And uh, there were so many aspects to it that I thought were interesting. Here's one. I mean, dreaming is such an important part of um, of the process within the, in the Indigenous culture. And it's such an important part in grounding them. And, and I mean, everything, talk about holistic. I mean, we think we're holistic when we think one part of the body connects to another part of the body. And if you want to get really holistic, you might think about how your body connects to nature. But this is just all-encompassing. I mean, it redefined the word holistic for me, who has been a holistic health advocate for my almost all of my professional life, uh, certainly for the last 40 years. Um, so it was a wonderful thing. But dreaming, back to dreaming, because when I read that section and I thought, wow, now, you know, I do know that w- the focus that we have in our pod- in the podcast and we will be having in our wellness programs is the importance of sleep and the stages of sleep, to be able to go into the deeper levels of sleep and then also with those deeper, those deeper levels 
are the deeper levels of non-REM, non-rapid eye movement sleep. But when you get into the rapid eye movement, you start to dream. And if you're unable to dream, then you do eventually affect you mentally and you can become delusional. And it occurred to me that our our the fact that we are, n- are not engaging in the dreaming that Indigenous knowledge could give us has somehow caused a cultural um, delusion that's gone on. So I just thought that juxtaposition of the importance of dreaming and how stories are told and connections to land and people and universe, the stars, is is told through the dreaming stories and the storylines and the song lines. But for us, um, the fact that we don't have that has resulted in a cultural delusion where we are not connected. Yes, the word country is just something which is all-encompassing. It includes everything and everyone and uh, anything that that influences, that lives or is on on the land. So it's just this incredible respect for for nature and for life and for the, the energy that flows through life. I just I just love talking to him. I just thought it was absolutely brilliant. Um, and I, I love the book and I love the talk that w- uh, that we had. I love the yarn that us two had in in that episode. It was certainly different from a lot of other podcasts that I've done. It was a really lovely conversation um, and, and it took many different directions and many different perspectives. And I'm really keen on this whole idea of in learning more about Indigenous culture. And I've sort of rather embarrassingly now, only now, started to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I record this podcast, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and was uh, really interested. I was at a function um, a few, about a year ago, where the um, the um, acknowledgement of country was explained much more than just that to say that the Eora Nation extended in the north to the Hawkesbury River, in the west, the, uh, no, in the in the north to the Hawkesbury, in the west to the Nepean, and in the south to the Georges, and it involved 29 clans. And what's so remarkable about Indigenous Australia is that there are 250 or so nations, many having clans within those nations and many languages that are distinctive. And uh, Tyson made the point that when you look at the borders of the land, uh, they're not drawn up in straight lines. They are not neat and nicely regimented. They really do follow the contours of the land. And the fact that there are so many distinct languages within this continent is a testament to the fact that for so long, and I think it's accepted now that at least for 65,000 years, there are other, uh, there are some archaeological finds that have suggested it could be even longer than that, 80 or 100, even 120,000 years, which would totally rewrite, um, you know, the history of the human journey out of Africa. I mean, that would just take on a, 
a whole new story. And I've just been reading a whole area of uh, archaeology that I didn't even know existed, and that is using genetics, archaeogeneticists, to explore the movement of peoples and migration of peoples over time. Now, another book that I have felt very passionate about is Dark Emi by Bruce Pascoe. And I, when I read it, I felt it just should be required reading for anybody living in Australia. And it lays out a story of not just a simple opportunistic hunter-gatherer society, which is the way it was portrayed by the early um, um, well, the early invaders. And it's interesting, actually, using that term, invasion. You know, I know that term has been used. And, and I thought, well, I should just look up the definition of invasion. And it's an act of invading, obviously, especially incurring incursion of an army for conquest or plunder, the incoming or spread of something usually hurtful. So I think it ticks many of those boxes that the arrival of um, the seven, in 1788 of the first settlers would be and should be described correctly as an invasion. And then the occupation, I thought, well, let's look up what an occupation means. The occupation is the action, state or period of occupying or being occupied by a military force. For example, the Roman occupation of Britain. Now, I'm sure when the when Rome invaded Britain, uh, the people didn't just say, oh, OK, well, they're here. Great. Welcome. Fantastic. Well, they probably had no choice, which was probably similar to what went on when um, when the first settlers and the British arrived in 1788. So uh, Dark, Dark Emu, and, and it was referred to as Terra Nullis because... It wasn't considered to be inhabited by a culture that was... There were some natives, but they were just natives. They weren't really of any cultural significance. The fact that they had been here for at least 65,000 years um, is, I believe, something we need to not just acknowledge, not just say sorry, but, but really draw on the knowledge of that. Because we've been here now for 240 or whatever years... And I just cannot see this being sustainable over the, you know, we get excited in Western society, in Western history, when we go, wow, the Roman Empire lasted a thousand years and there have been lots of other empires that have lasted a lot less than that. But a thousand years is so impressive. Well, you know, 65,000 years is pretty impressive too. And yes, it didn't develop to the... Um, apparent sophistication by however we define that in our modern world, but it certainly survived and if and 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 was in harmony with nature through all of its challenges. So it depends what your criteria is for success. If criteria for success of a species is survival and living in harmony with nature, with the environment in which you live, then I think the Indigenous community and cultures have certainly got runs on the board that we need to be respectful of and draw on um, and think about differently. So starting first with the respect, then moving to connecting, then reflecting on what lessons we can learn, and then finally directing action would be, I would think, a very good way to go. Um, Dark Emu, I've been really keen to invite Bruce Pascoe 
on to talk. I think he, he's terrific. I think his messages are terrific. I know that some of the issues around his book were challenged by some archaeologists. But I can't help but think there's largely semantics involved there. But, but anyway, there were so many important things that were outlined in that wonderful, wonderful book. And the other book that I would recommend to you is Bill Gamage's The Biggest Estate on Earth, which describes what the first settlers observed when they came to Australia and, and what they looked at were parklands. It's kind of sobering. To I'm reading another book now at the moment called Country, which is written by both Bill Pascoe and uh, Bill, uh, Bruce Pascoe and, and Bill Gamage. And um, in one of the chapters, and this was in The Biggest Estate on Earth, uh, Bill Gamage points out that there are more trees now in Australia than they were when the first settlers arrived. And there would have been on the average 10 to 12 trees per acre and that there was very little scrub and undergrowth and that there were natural grasses, which Bruce Pascoe points out were harvested and the grains from those were stored and sometimes probably traded. Um, so that would constitute agriculture and all yams, natural yams. So, so these were acre after acre of this kind of vegetation around trees that were well managed. And, and that was the way Australia looked on the biggest estate on earth, as outlined in Bill Gamage's book, which is based on, on first uh, sources. So, you know, the sources were first hand. These were the description of explorers and first settlers when they first arrived. So I think we have a huge amount to learn from Indigenous culture. I'm hoping to get both Bruce and Bill on. It was terrific to talk to Tyson. I think we have so many lessons to learn culturally, environmentally, uh, spiritually, on so many different levels. And so it was a great uh, foray into that area and it's going to be a, a focus in the coming year. I hope this finds you well. Until next time, this is Dr. Ron Ehrlich. Be well. This podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health and related subjects. The content is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice or as a substitute for care by a qualified medical practitioner. If you or any other person has a medical concern, he or she should consult with an appropriately qualified medical practitioner. Guests who speak in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences and conclusions.